0: This this, this show is brought to you by Safety
1: FM. On Friday, I was at the International Conference on Climate Change. It was sponsored by the Heartland Institute, a uh, think tank. We interviewed some very interesting people, including... Here, let me see. Uh, I uh, have to go through the interviews, right? Uh... No, I got home. And I'm, pardon me. I'm hitting the ground running here. We had a lot of clients out there that I'm catching up on here. So we interviewed. Uh, here, I'll give you his name. We interviewed Christopher Monckton, the third Viscount of third Viscount Langkant of Brunchley. So he is a hereditary peer from England. What he is, is, right? So I think, uh, okay, I'll be upfront here. I've been studying the global warming thing since 1986. I think there's a lot of questions that have not been asked of what has become the mainstream global warming folks, right? So I was able to secure an interview at this event with the leader of the, uh, and they call him, you know, uh, many different things, denying climate change, doesn't deny climate change. Uh, he's, uh, so, you no, know, No, they're attacking him personally a lot of times. Some may be warranted or not. I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not here to judge anybody here. But he brings up some very, uh, some points and everything else. Uh, to the other side of this issue, and we have some other folks also that come on that came on in the middle of this issue. We also have somebody who talked about who talked about earthquakes. So I have a lot of interviews here. I have to edit uh, down and everything else for content and also for time, mostly for time. So uh, as you know, I normally don't edit any any of the interviews down the times I do the interviews. So. Uh, That's what's going on here. Uh, And uh, he was able to connect a lot of the dots for me in this study, uh, in his ongoing studies of these issues. So a lot going on out here. Uh, I also wanted to thank uh, Ian Punnett of... Coast to Coast AM and all the other people that sent some very kind words and listened to the program on uh, February 17th or 18th, depending on your time zone. It's a late night slash early morning program, depending on where you live. And uh, I wanted to thank him personally uh, and give a shout out to him. Uh, I had a lot of fun. They kept me on for two hours. So we covered the East Palestine, Ohio Uh, train wreck out there and in since the 17th now it's the 27th so 10 days later we're into this Uh, some other information came out and stuff and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes here so uh, what were some of the takeaways I had seven takeaways here all right number one the authorities did not necessarily make bad choices they did not have any good choices to manage the situation uh, number two is that it's it, so that had to do with the uh, controlled burn out there. Though I might have made the same decision. They're dealing with the same information, the same equipment, the same circumstances. So, and I really hate to second guess the people in the field, uh, the people closest to the problem. As we know, that's that's always been my attitude. But I, but as far as uh, Hop is concerned, human organizational performance. The uh, right, the people in the field are the experts, and they're the ones who give context to these situations. Number two, it is difficult to make a decision how clean is clean. So, for example, you have lead-based paint. There are interior standards for lead-based paint dust, all right, when you're doing the cleanups and everything else. So the question is this, uh, how clean is clean how, you know, with any of this? How do you know? Uh right uh I'm uh, working on a toxicology uh uh class for one of my clients right now teaching it. And this is one of the things. The uh reality of the situation is let me give you some statistics here. The do 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 the well I'm calling that up. I don't have it in here. They do not have exposure standards for most materials out there. Oh, really? Yeah, they don't really have exposure standards for most materials here. So when you're thinking about this stuff, right, the number of st- substances with the permissible exposure limit, that's the regulatory limit set by OSHA, is roughly around 500. number of substances with an REL, uh, that's recommended exposure limit from NIOSH, is 677. The EPA regulates 187 hazardous air pollutants, and there are six national ambient air quality standards. Uh, The ACGIH has roughly, uh, let me see, uh, how many TLVs are there? I'm looking this up, right? Uh, Allow, allow, allow. Okay, so... Do, do 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 roughly about the same amount right several hundred uh and they also have do 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 right there there are some standards for uh, not from the ACGIH necessarily but some of the other agencies out there for what's safe on a surface and let's remember if you all have the same target organ right uh you still have all that you have to run through the additive formula, which I'm not gonna do on the air here. And for that to see whether you're above uh uh no, uh unless you're above a uh what do you call it? Uh, uh this, determine whether you're above the exposure limits. So you would go out and you'd use the formula and run the numbers on the additive formula, figure that out if you have the same uh target organ now if you're a csv or cih or chst or OHSD, it's all on the uh, uh body of knowledge the rubric on there so you can look it up uh toxicology but anyway so there are no real standards there and then you're also dealing with chemical sensitivities genetics uh psychological things these people have been traumatized out there they got thrown out of their home there there there's uncertainty and everything else thrown in there so you got people freaking out here all right understandably freaking out which may be adding to some of this thing uh thing these things out there uh number three some chemicals are heavier there and therefore the bulk amount of the material might settle in low places and might i use that in air quotes like basements and sewers and control, and control burn eliminates that hazard. But now we have other hazards. So, as of right now, no one died or no one got hurt. No, uh, we're so actual hurt, uh, however you want to define that. And, you know, Todd Conklin mentions that hurt means a lot of different things. Uh, but I tell you what, cleaning up this stuff, if you're a first responder, poses a lot of risk all right we're dealing with a flammable material a hazardous material and everything else uh you know it's uh so you 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 might have an issue uh here with first responders getting hurt and immediately getting hurt so perhaps a controlled burn was the correct thing to do uh Something else, a definition of safety. We always talk about that. What's the definition? If you're ever going to attend one of my safety classes, uh, you're going to have a thing there. Zero accidents, zero illnesses, zero injuries. Likely nothing will ever be safe. Safety is capacity, resilience, and the presence of controls or safeguards. All right, so get rid of that uh, and uh, uh, Joe Pena off of uh, LinkedIn uh, she posts and a lot of people who follow this program also follow her um, LinkedIn right what do you do now what do you do you have none of these accidents uh, none of these statistics that we're gonna be what do you what do you track here other things you track and let's remember if something you may say well something's intangible, well, it's tangible if you can prove that it can be measurable. Nothing, you know, tangible, intangibles are not measurable, so they don't really exist, right? It's, a, it's a very subjective. But if you can prove, but you can prove that tangibles, if you can prove tangibles do exist, then they do exist. Intangibles exist, they do exist. So attitude, corporate culture, anxiety, turnover rate, uh, no things of that nature. Now, according to OSHA, you have to track. You know all of this stuff. Yeah, you do, but you never want to be the person on that sign that says that turns everything back to zero or back to one. And when you have those signs, zero accidents, zero illnesses, zero injuries. Guess what? Now you're. Do you want to be the guy or person to turn that back to zero? Something else that I found out. I. Uh, was contacted by some people in the railway industry who heard the interview and who spoke to me. I spoke to, and I want to thank them personally here. I can't mention their name. That we mentioned that fifteen that there are 1,500 derailments per year. The number is actually a lot higher because of this. Ooh, really? Yeah, so a derailment... It's not necessarily, you think uh, derailment, you're thinking about cars going in piles and this and that. Then that's not necessarily it. It's whenever the uh, uh, wheels come off the track. So that happens all the time. Happens a hell of a lot more than 1,500 times a year. Those go unreported. So we know those are underreported. So they got into this year with this. Right? And if that happens, then that's got to be reported, filed, uh, filed uh, accident report, the whole nine yards. It's a very laborious nightmare thing. So there's an incentive there not to report this stuff. All right. Number six, uh, we need a thorough investigation of this incident, So you do not make bad policy decisions that won't be effective or be appropriate. So the NTSB already has released some preliminary stuff that there was an issue with one of the axles on the train. Thankfully, the, uh, uh, train engineer, the train operator did not have, uh, was not speeding. And he, I'm assuming it's a he, because the report said he, uh, the report I read said, read said he, he attempted to stop the train. and That's when the derailment happened. So, well, the whole thing is liability and fault, right? Fault is a very imprecise word. Some people are like, the railway is at fault. This person's at fault. Well, most likely, right, from what I've read, the train company is liable for this. It's their train. But fault, now what does that really mean? And Yes, it's their equipment and malfunction and everything. But, that, but what does that mean? But it could be a manufacturing defect. It could be any number of things that led to this accident. Right? And blame uh, as uh, I was going to put this up on the internet. Right? Uh, The uh, new Star Trek Picard, the closing credits, they have this thing. Blame no one. Right? Blame is ineffective. Something along those lines in the end credits. Right? Okay. Okay. It's their fault. Okay, Where do, what the, what the hell do we do with it from there? Well, what happened? That doesn't answer what happened. Was this human error? Was this a manufacturing defect? Was this a, manu, uh, a maintenance issue? What was this that happened here? We don't know. Let's figure that out. And there were workarounds on the regulations for this stuff. Also, uh, I'm not. Uh, I haven't read them personally, but from my sources. There are workarounds on all this stuff with maintenance and fixing things and whatever and inspections. There's workarounds that people normally do that are perfectly legal and it's the industry standard. So uh, that's how it is. So, and number seven, the more, informa- inf- more information is always better. Right, so, you have more information we talk about uh, with a hop. Right where we get we we have that we're we're, no it's not that we don't collect statistics yeah we may collect statistics but we want to know when bad things happen we want to know all this well when all this bad stuff happens because if uh, you do not uh, if you do not uh, have the information hold on I got people calling me and texting me and everything else. All right. So I apologize there. I know that's rude. You're the one listening here. So you have all this information coming in. What are you going to do with it? Now there's uh, been talk. Well, the government should have all this information. This should have been reported. Well, they were, were according to the information I have, they weren't over the threshold for the next level of reporting. So, uh, all of the uh, cars had their UN numbers, right? The DOT numbers on them. And there was a manifest that went with the train. But that was pretty much it. So that was all they were required to do. If they would have put more trains together here or maybe uh, loaded the cars differently, then they might have, this might have kicked into something else. Okay, well, you have this train going 47 miles an hour through rural Ohio explain to me what the government what now what the government's gonna do with that information all right okay, maybe that when something happens okay well we know that we this train is out there are they gonna follow the train with a hazmat crew with a helicopter oh we're gonna find this thing out and follow it what are they gonna do are they okay but you're generating all this info maybe they'll be able to plan better how's that? Maybe if they plan, now that, now we take this information, we're able to plan better. Maybe stage equipment where we know that our hazardous materials and our highly hazardous materials do go on this route or this route and this route and this area. These are the areas that we have identified that are danger zones. Maybe uh, give more training to the first responders through the, where this is going, what through a population center. Something. Okay, now we have more information. Now we're able to do something with it. But just generating more information, I, I you know, I don't know, uh, in, what, for it to be uh, a, a warehouse? What was the latest information that was warehouse that, uh, thanks to NBC News, was discovered? Uh, we talked about it here. Come on, what was it? The power grid, right? There are people who are experts in power grid that don't have that information. We found that out on Friday. Uh, with one of the interviews, all right, uh, that's still almost like a quarantine information that only us safety people know. And if you're a listener to this program, you know about that threats to the power grid, right? So that was more or less. Now, what do you do with the info? What are you gonna What are you gonna do with it? That's all uh, questions there with that. So. Since we're on this, let's continue with uh, some of this stuff, and I have my cat here, right? Once again, in on the action. So let's take a break for a second here. Let me uh, compose myself and set up the
0: next thing. with a powerful force of knowledge and support.
1: OSHA recordables, first aid cases, catastrophic losses. You want answers, so do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. Okay, so we are back here. All right, so uh, we're continuing with our ongoing coverage of the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. So I'm uh, going. I, as part of my preparation for the program on uh, coast to coast, I went through all the air sampling and water sampling data and everything that was released then. A rather extensive uh, thing with that, and like I said, we have four questions that we have to answer here. Uh, with this, with any type of emergency response, and you're dealing, it could be with water uh, contamination, air contamination, uh, radiation, uh, anything like that. All right, there are four questions that you need to answer, and uh, you want to write this down. All right, uh, number one, is the air, water, or what have you, safe? Number two, uh, what uh, what are you basing that on? Is it a standard? No. Uh, opinion what have you what were the chemicals number 3 that's the third question and number 4 did they actually go out there and sample for that what was the math sampling what what is it now to their credit the emergency responders the state of ohio uh, i believe it's called the ohio epa and all these other things agencies have done a pretty darn good job with reporting things so I have the latest update. It has not been updated for today, but it was updated as of last night. Uh, So go to the EPA.gov website, and there is a link prominently in uh, the top of the page. And let me, in case they take this down. and I'm just going to read right off of this. uh, Read right off of this here, and it's pretty good. So EPA continues, this is from February 26, 2023, air monitoring and indoor air screening. And I'm going to go and comment on this. Uh, EPA continues uh, real-time air monitoring and collecting air samples throughout the community. All right. Uh, air monitoring and sampling will continue until removal of heavily contaminated soil in the derailment area is complete and odors subside in the community. EVA also continues to assist in indoor air quality, indoor air screenings to homes. Uh, To date, 578 homes have been screened with no exceedances for residential air quality standards. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to highlight residential air quality standards. We're going to go to this, residential air quality standards. And here we have indoor air quality, right? From the EPA. By the way, we're going to do this in video very shortly on this. And do, do, do. My question would be to them, what specific indoor air quality standards are they talking about with this? All right. Just to say, no, hey, uh, residential air quality standards. What are they? What are those? What are, you, what are you sampling for? All right. And I have right here typical indoor air quality pollutants, and they have a whole list here. All right. Uh, biological carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide dust, Environmental tobacco smoke, fine particulate matter, lead, nitrogen oxides, pesticides, radon, and other volatile organic compounds, right? With that. So, normally, what the rule of thumb is, unless otherwise stated, it's 10% of the lowest uh, occupational exposure limit, divide by two, and because you have a two to one safety margin, and that is your, uh, and that is your, uh, uh, uh Uh, standard that's you the rule of thumb that uh, in lieu of any other standard that is often out there so uh do 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 so uh, that's what that's what i would always ask is what are they doing again Public drinking water, East Fallison public drinking water testing results confirm there is no indication of risk to the East Fallison public water system customers. Treated drinking water shows no detection of contaminants associated with the derailment. Good. It's public drinking water that's sampled at, uh, that's sampled at, uh, 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 the water source, right? Leaving the plant that got sampled. Right, residential private well sampling. The Columbiana County Health District continues to sample private water wells. To date, a total of 120 wells, one hundred and twenty wells—one wells have been sampled in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Okay, so here's my question: What were the results? Right. So again, you have the public water system, right, coming from a water treatment plant, and then you have a private one. What are the results? And and they say that they go on to this. And then uh, soil, right? So EPA continues to support Ohio EPA in the state's ongoing and future cleanup activities for the incident, including water quality efforts. EPA collected soil and sediment samples at the derailment site for analysis for volatile organic compounds, semi-volatile organic compounds, a.k.a. base neutrals, Gasoline-range organic compounds, that's usually VTECs, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene. Diesel-range organic compounds and oil-range organic compounds. And they're referring you over to the Ohio EPA. Waste disposal. EPA issued a directive to Norfolk Southern on Friday, February 24th, to accelerate cleanup of the train derailment site. Under this February 24th directive, waste disposal plans, including disposal, location, and transportation routes for contaminated waste, contaminated waste are subject to EPA review and approval moving forward. The directive, is This directive, so the EPA is standing in here. This directive is an important step in the transition from a state-led emergency response phase any response to an EPA-led cleanup phase. All right, so there's a transition. This is going from local to fed. All right, EPA has decades of experience dealing with hazardous waste, both from cleaning up contaminated sites and regulating the landfills where it's disposed of. As we continue to identify EPA certified facilities that can accept this waste, some of the liquid waste will be sent to a facility in Vickery, Ohio on February 27th, that's today, where it will be disposed of in an underground injection well. Uh, Tomorrow morning, Norfolk Southern will also begin shipping solid waste to their Heritage Incinerator in East Liverpool, Ohio. This means the cleanup can continue at a rapid pace. EPA will continue working with the railroad and our state and local partners to identify other solid waste locations. So air sampling and monitoring. Air sampling and monitoring are two different methods of looking at air quality. Air sampling involves collecting air sample over a period of time, that, a.k.a. time-weighted average, that is uh, that is sent to the laboratory for analysis to identify and quantify specific compounds. Air monitoring uses electronic uh, devices to provide real-time, meaning instant, readings of airborne contaminants. So typically what kind, and we're going to look here. Uh, typically uh, what uh, happens is uh, with this, they have uh, different mare- models. You'll see like, they look like little birdhouses. They're usually aluminum and they're around and they're a- able to put air through a sample medium, usually some kind of charcoal or other treated, Medium right granular medium for organic compounds uh, that are in vapor phase or uh, that are in vapor or gaseous phase, and they send that out for sam uh, for analysis. Now air monitoring is a little bit less precise. Often with air monitoring, what happens is uh, you're going to identify classes of compounds. So, for example, volatile organic compounds, that's a class of compounds. You could also have Draeger tubes, which are, uh, 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 well, that's a brand name, but they're colorimetric tubes. I'll use a generic. So, these colorimetric tubes are tubes that you run air through, and it gives you a near real-time reading, right? So, for example, a benzene tube, when you have to pump it like 20 times to get down to the very low exposure limits for benzene. So the PEL is uh, one part per million. So every one of those pumps usually takes about 20, uh, 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 about 20, uh, I'm sorry, each one of those pumps takes about a minute. So that's a near, so you look at that 20 minutes roughly for one sample. That's the best you could do. Normally a lot of times what they would do on a job like this since believe me there's a lot of money involved here. They go and uh, they sample things in uh, 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 what is' called a gas chromatograph in the field or they're able to run all this stuff through a chromatograph and that a machine that measures individual spikes on a, a, like a strip chart recorder except it's all done electronically now right you don't get the old-fashioned strip chart. Like we used to use way back in olden times, right? And then you're able to identify exactly what the uh, monitoring, is, what you know, what the uh, contaminant is. So uh, here we go. USC air monitoring that was done. USCVA has a whole mobile detection equipment and stationary equipment to conduct air monitoring at the East Palestine community. So they have mobile equipment, they have stationary equipment, they have all different types of stuff out there uh, with that, right? Uh, It's a long, drawn-out thing. I need visuals for it. Uh, U.S. EPA collected field measurements for lower explosive limits, LEL, also known as lower flammable limits. So uh, that's the uh, in-air, right? That's a general screening monitor where in-air you're going to have, uh, you're going to measure all of the explosives in the air, and it's going to uh, uh, measure uh, the, uh, uh, what at what level you are of the explosive limit. Usually, the limit is set at 10, not to exceed 10% of that limit. So, for example, for methane, the lower explosive limit is 50,000. So, you're not allowed to go above 5,000 on the monitors, and that's a prohibited condition. Total volat- vol- volatile organic compounds, VOCs, that's in general, right? That's a whole class and it all depends on how it's set up. I would imagine that they have a higher energy bulb on there. And I'm also, uh, a bulb is called a photoionization detector. But in this case, they probably are using what is called a flame ionization detector. So photoionization detector uses a uh, ultraviolet light that pulls air across it right? A sample of air over it. through it. This is all real time. And it ionizes the air and you're able to measure that ionization. And you get a total level of volatile organic compounds. A flame ionization detector, which is probably what they're also using out there, uses a hydrogen flame to do the same thing. All right. Then you have a hydrogen sulfide detector. That's in there, right? Benzene, hydrocyanide, hydrogen chloride, Phosgene, those are, I believe they have sensors for all of those. If not, they're using, like I said, with the uh, color metric tubes. But I find that, you know, hard to believe. And particulate matter. So air monitoring locations were selected at schools, residential areas, several government buildings, upwind of the derailment area. Why would you do it upwind? Because maybe there's air pollution coming in from elsewhere. That happens on a lot of the jobs out there that I've been on where they're in an industrialized area and there are things coming in from upwind. You always sample upwind in the derailment area and downwind of the derailment area. So in the derailment area, that makes sense. You, You can figure that out. Why do you want to do a downwind? See what's coming off the site and to set up an exclusion zone with that and to relate that to the community. So air sampling... Uh, The EPA uh, is collecting outdoor air samples for VOCs that's target contaminants of concern list, and tentatively identify compounds, including vinyl chloride and butyl acrylate and ethyl hexyl acrylate. Yay. I pronounced everything right. Uh, Air sampling locations were selected up within the derailment area, the work area and downward areas. So they're probably collecting personal samples where the employees are wearing and also uh, other stuff. So here we have, and I'll mention it, it's indoor air quality screening. The US EPA has assisted indoor air screening in more than 500 homes under a voluntary screening program offered to residents within the evacuation zone. So they're probably not going to be releasing that sample data online for any of this private stuff. I'd be really surprised, but typically when I do indoor air quality uh, screening and what I would be doing is a uh, summa canister or what more commonly is called whole gas sampling. And it, what it is, is it's a uh, cylinder. It's about the si- half the size of your propane cylinder in your grill, right, for the outside grill or for heaters, things of that nature. And rather than putting propane in it, what they do is they create a vacuum and they put a valve on there. So they're able to draw in a certain amount of air into that. Then they take that to the lab over usually 24 hours and uh, it could be less or more, but normally 24 hours. And they take that sample and they send it out to a lab for analysis. Very expensive, very expensive. They're probably paying close to two Gs for one of those if they're using those in the home. That's what I would be doing for that, with that. And I'd also would be screening homes that are not impacted in that area, that are not upwind of this whole situation. So I would have a reference point of what's going on in the other homes in the community. I would also uh, determine what's going on outside and also inside. So typically these whole gas samples, when you're doing indoor air quality stuff, you want to measure inside and outside. So you have a reference in there, because then you're able to see well. Look, what's going on on the inside? is not what's going on on the outside. And is there a previous contamination here, or is this something that we didn't see? And you're able to figure out and more information. And they're uh, uh, and they are uh, examined by qualified people, usually a certified. Usually, not all the time. Usually. certified industrial hygienist, uh, possibly a uh, toxicologist and maybe an environmental toxicologist or other public health official uh, with that. But this is where, you know, you get the really high-end science folks that are involved in there. So uh, the EPA has a a link for reviewing air sampling data. Do, do, do. And... They have air, oh, here we go. They have a dashboard. They have a GIS system here with this of all the air sampling locations. And according to this, they are using, oh, look at this. They have a complete list of contaminants here that they are uh, running here. So they are using sorbent tubes, which, uh, Right, which is uh, uh, they're running air through a tube and sending that for analysis. Sumacanister, which is what I just described, whole gas sampling, and Tedlar bag, which is in the field they analyze in the field through a gas chromatograph, where they take an uh, uh, air sample in, and, and it looks like a uh, Ziploc bag, but it's sealed and it has a va- valve on top, and they put it into a uh, device that is similar to an iron lung. You could google iron lung and they fill up the bag with air right with the air in the ambient environment all right and at least that's the way we used to do it back in the day we're using on basically an iron lung small one in a uh, pelican case they draw an air sample in there and they're able to do an analysis of that through the uh gas uh chromatograph out there so uh, do do do, and they have the lab results. So let's see. I'm gonna zoom in here. Okay, and, and it's all here. So here are the lab results for one 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 trichloroethane, non detect. For one one two two tetrachloroethane, non detect. Not detected. 1, 1, and it goes on. I'm looking non-detect. Trichlorofluoroethane, uh, 0.46 micrograms, so that's 1. And I, no, You could go here, and I'm not going to give an opinion here, but I would go and, you know, I would go here. It's very, I tell you, what, I'm very impressed with what I'm seeing here. I'm gonna have to do a zoom here of this, and they have multiple uh, air samples here and reporting here. Uh, I'm impressed; they got their stuff together. I say that I'm gonna say that about the uh, EPA, and they have they have multiple analytes here. So okay, so incredible. And here I have a comma separated value. It's all here. All right, so let's go back to, I know this is boring. Now we have water sampling data. And they have water sampling data. Hold on, water sampling data. I'm impressed with them. All right. And they ran uh, their uh, sample methods, free product or streamer river free product means the actual stuff, right? And uh, if there was a, a skim, a sheen or something like that, or, in the water you're able to get a what is called uh an aqueous phase right so you have in this case it would be called a denavel dense uh non aqueous phase liquid right from that would be for vinyl chloride that would be a sinker right and then you have a non aqueous phase liquid that would be the floater of that I think that's memory serves you me right that's what it is. Don't quote me on that. I, I know. I just said it on the radio. So is it a sinker or a floater? And they're going to be sampling that. And uh, they have a whole bunch of stuff here uh, that they analyzed uh, for. You can look it up on the EPA website. And here you have uh, soil and sediment data. Boy, some attorney is going to have, some consultants going to make a lot of money here. And... Now, I'm going to say this. This is something else that I don't think was mentioned on the news. They have uh, Taggart Street here uh, in East Palestine, uh, Ohio. All right. On Palestine Street, there are several. Well, there are like three hazardous waste sites on that street. So my question is this, is why they're doing all the sampling. Was the contamination they're seeing, if any, at all? Coming from these hazardous waste sites, I'm sure there's a lot of consultants out there sweating bullets right now, hoping that they did the cleanup appropriately. And they they right, and I'm sure there's people from Norfolk Southern saying, "Holy no, ho- holy mackerel, we may be ahead up with uh, uh, cleaning up other people's messes." That might happen also. Mm. Something uh, you know in the background, so. Uh, going on out here. That's what I'm famous for, apparently. Almost famous. So, again, a lot of uh, air monitoring data, everything else. uh, You can have a field day here. If you want to hire me to look over the air monitoring data, you can call me at 845-269-5772. I'll do an uh, in-depth an uh, in-depth Uh, Thing, right? An in depth uh, analysis of it. So, and they have a slideshow here of the scene. Very interesting. So, they are uh, using real time monitors for benzene, apparently. Okay, great. So that's what we got there. Uh, all the data's there. Uh, I'm very... If I was an Ohio resident right now, I'd be very proud of uh, the way that they're handling this as far as, uh, I don't know about, you no, know, safe or not safe, but as far as the amount of data that they're generating, I'd be very proud. I think they're uh, they're doing a uh, doing great job uh, with this stuff. Uh, but the thing is, is the problem, as Ian Punnett uh, had... Uh, brought up okay it's one thing to put the data out there but you need someone to look at the data explain it and that's one of the reasons why you're here all right uh, I'm gonna take a, a brief uh, break here because there's some other information we're going to talk about that's a uh, 30-hour outreach training
0: In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated-R Safety Show has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozzell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support.
1: OSHA reportables, first aid cases, catastrophic losses. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polsel with Safety Wars. Okay, uh, I didn't know that. Is uh, fifteen? What? What was it? Nineteen? Twenty years ago today. Twenty? Uh, how many? Uh, Eighteen? Twenty years ago today, uh, Fred Rogers died. He would have been ninety-four had he uh, lived. Uh, yeah, 2003, so 20 years ago today. Well, rest in peace, Fred Rogers. Uh, I remember watching him. Anyway, let's talk about OSHA 30-hour training, 10-hour training. So as everybody here probably knows, and if you want OSHA 10-hour and 30-hour training, give us a call, 845-269-5772, or email me at jimatsafetywards.com. Uh, it's very frustrating uh, to me, right? And to legitimate trainers. There's a lot of misunderstanding. It's not the person on uh, taking the class. They're misunderstanding so much. Sometimes things get misunderstood. But it's people on my end that have a problem with communicating it. So OSHA has four areas for outreach training. And this is federal OSHA. States have different requirements. Some of the states and some of the industries, some of the facilities require OSHA outreach training to even be eligible to work with, uh, to even work in... uh, to even work in the industry. So I worked at a facility. You need a 10-hour training. You need a 30-hour training for another one, construction, or you need a PSM training, which is another training. It's not outreach training, but PSM, process safety management training, uh, with that. And what the idea is is to make you aware of the hazards, and it's an awareness-level training. You're not actually certified to do anything. So what happens often is, and it's with unscrupulous safety companies uh, and uh, safety professionals. They send these, they said, yeah, we're going to give you training. They tell that to an entry-level person. They send them to a 30-hour course, and they come out of the 30-hour course. Now I am an expert on safety. Uh Uh-uh. That's an awareness-level training course. Every one of these courses is supposed to be different and it's supposed to be specific to what you're doing. So, for example... Uh, no, there's construction, general industry, maritime, and disaster response. So, for example, if you are doing concrete construction, you're probably going to be talking a little bit about concrete hazards, silica hazards, and within the guidelines, you know, so many hours this, so many hours this, and uh, crystalline rest of the crystalline silica. If, however, you are a uh, another construction trade, a glazer, all right, or lather, all right, or lather, right, with the rebar, your focus is going to be a lot different. You not, may not worry about respirable crystalline silica on those jobs, right, so much. You, respiratory protection, not even required with that, all right? So this is an awareness level. So often what happens is companies are say, yes, my employees are trained. They have a 30-hour course. Well, guess what? That doesn't include scaffolding-competent person. Any competent person, for that matter. There's like 27 different areas that you had need for construction. That doesn't include fall-production-competent person. That does not include uh, uh, aerial or broom lifts. That does not include uh, rust crystalline silica. Right? You may mention it, restful crystal and silica for five minutes, but that's not the full-blown training. Permit required confined space entry. You may mention it for a couple hours. You may talk about it maybe for three hours. But OSHA, if you go to the OSHA course, that's a three-day course. If you go to an OSHA outreach center like uh, Rutgers, it's a three-day three course, two-and-a-half, three-day course. Uh, you go to any of the other ones out there, it's a week-long course for that. Uh, for some of the places. So that's, you know, you're not getting actual training. You're getting awareness training. Like, oh, this is what you need to look at. Something else that you're supposed to be getting. Back in the day, it was a lot. It was like two hours. Intro to OSHA. Where we're we're supposed to go through and we're supposed to tell you a little bit of record keeping and things of that nature. A lot of trainers don't even go over that because the curriculum is very loosey-goosey. I run into companies that run into an issue where they don't even uh, do the outreach. Uh, When they did the outreach training, they didn't know about reporting. That's, this is not through no fault of their own, right? They're they're going here. They get sold. Oh yeah, I'm going. I'm going to be thirty hour trained. I'm going to know so much about this. And they go there. There's a lot of stuff that they don't know about. That's where a professional person on staff uh, come has value. This way, for example, if you're going to have a hospitalization, an in person hospitalization, I don't mean going into an emergency room because an emergency room. Uh, in a hospital is not necessarily an admission into the hospital, right? And there's different interpretations for that, and that's a long story. But they get admitted into the hospital, like overnight, something like that for, I don't know, surgery, what have you, right? Overnight for other than not, right? You have to call OSHA within 24 hours that of that incident. That's a, That's an issue here, all right? Uh, another point, uh, that, that's not what the employer's responsibilities are under OSHA. That's often not talked about, right? So if you're an employer class, so let's say that you're teaching a class full of employers often. Oh, well the employer, no, depending on how it is a trainer and I've seen it happen. Trainer will say, Well, your employees are all responsible for their own safety. You no, know, you know, I was in here in the men's room and there's that sign and you have a mirror on it. No, the person in this mirror is the last, uh, is the person responsible for their own safety. And this is what the employee's responsibility are. And that's how it's taken. Oh, employer, not, not too much. And then you get the other end. You're the an employee and they say, Well, hey, the employer is responsible for everything, blah, 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 blah. If you're an employer, it's incumbent on you to figure out what your legal responsibilities are. So, for example, in New York, it's one of those few states out there that if you're a confident person and you screw it up, good chance that you know, someone gets killed, you could go to jail. The state will enforce that. All right? Maybe you should know that. And, you know, we're not supposed to go into local stuff on the uh, you know, during the OSHA outreach training. Uh, and, you know, uh, OSHA uh, doesn't refer a lot of things over to the Justice Department for Prosecution. Something like 700 in the last 50 years, 700 cases. Not an awful lot. The number is off, but it's something like that in that range. Maybe you should know that. There's a lot of stuff that should be talked about, right? Maybe it's appropriate for the 30-hour outreach course. Maybe it isn't. But what, what's my point? My point is, if you're the employer, there's a lot more that's going on in there. So if you're a trainer, and again, we give training to all this stuff here. I give it. With that, you're supposed to know that. Uh, first aid CPR training. Unless you have uh, a three- to four-minute response from emergency responders, like an EMT or something, you got to have first aid CPR training, some designated people for that. Wow, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that you need to know and you need to do outside that 30-hour course. So don't think that, oh, yeah, I took the 30-hour course and blah, 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 blah. Now, in New York City, there are people who are still, right? So New York City has a 30-hour requirement, 30-hour outreach requirement uh, under the Department of Buildings stuff and on the D.P. the same thing. There are still people out there. That I talked to, yeah, my boss fought them off, off the street, these 30-hour cards. Really? Can I see it? No. Oh. Right? There's so, so don't think that because someone has a 30-hour card, they actually know what's going on. Right? So because of the varied quality of those training classes uh, out there. I mean, you know, Daily News had it right, safety for sale. Right. 13 years ago now. You can Google that, right? Uh, 13, 14 years ago now. So that's something you need to remember. All of this stuff. What kind of training do I need? What kind of training do I have? What do I need? If you're the employer, you're supposed to know that. Now, you also get the situation with uh human resources. I run into this often. I'm an MBA. I know everything that's going on in here. And then you figure out well they know uh, what they don't know. Well, did you do this? Do you know this? Do you know? This? Because MBA programs normally do not cover, and human resource programs don't really go into OSHA in depth. That's where you need a safety professional guiding you along on that. And that's where you run into things. And I've I've run into a lot of HR people that, right, if they're working with me, I'll sit down with the HR people. We'll have the HR people actually go through the 30-hour course, some of the other trainings. I'll give them a list of things. um, For one of my clients, I got all the office people that handle uh, clients and stuff like that. Got them all together. We're going to explain what all the training is and what OSHA is and everything else. So you're able to get through uh, all of that. But anyway, this is what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'm back. I'm not going to be on every day this week, uh, but I will be on a majority of the days uh, live. Uh, That's what's going on. And I just wanted to thank everybody for the ongoing support. And this Friday, we are celebrating two years on the air. And I want to thank everybody for their support. If uh, you don't listen on Friday. So, uh, We'll be back, God willing, tomorrow, fighting that safety war. See you tomorrow.